All right, welcome everyone to Alpha Bunga Bunga. This is Alex Hochili in São Paulo, Brazil. Also on the line is George Hoare in London, and our guest today, Anton Jaeger, uh, who's back on the podcast for the first time since December. Who we're very happy to welcome back. And Anton tells us he's in Austin, Texas, right now, uh, trying his best to keep Austin weird, but it's uh, it's resisting. It is. It is. It's very very recalcitrant. It's it's being it's trying to be normy, and you're trying to keep it weird. Yeah, yeah, it has normalized extremely. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah, Anton, you're there doing uh, some archival research, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, mainly populism-related material. Mainly populism-related material. Uh, actually, Anton has a very good article recently out in, in Jacobin on uh, from populism to socialism and back, looking at the confluence and uh, and sometimes an uneasy uh, relationship between populism and socialism, which is really good. I'd urge you to check it out. And we might, uh, at the end of this, end up talking a little bit about it, but uh, the main order of business today is post-work and especially a article that has recently come out on non-site in which Anton reviews David Graeber's Bullshit Jobs which came out in 2017 and it's a really superb review and synthesis of uh, these sorts of discussions around post-work. So we're gonna we're gonna I guess dive right into this. One thing that you note in the article Anton is that uh, work now is the condition of 60% of the planet with probably another 40% sort of dependent on it. Um, and yet at the same time, I, I mean, this is something that I'm, I'm pointing out is that, you know, labor participation rates are falling in many Western countries. You have the specter of automation, which is much talked about, but uh, which I think hasn't been conclusively decided upon. I, I mean, you know, automation is still is still sort of a question. It's not uh, however much some sort of uh, more technocratically minded people wish to treat automation as a sort of future inevitability. I think the actual contours of it uh, and intensity of automation and the speed at which it'll happen is still very much under question. Consequently, I, I guess my, my first question is, why has, uh, why has this debate come about now about post-work? Um, because as, as you mentioned, work is now sort of generalized condition for a lot of people on the planet, while at the same time, uh, work seems increasingly difficult to to achieve for a lot of people in the West with uh, rising unemployment or, you know, falling labor participation rates, precaritization, and so on. Yes, I think there are several factors that play in the way this post-work debate has become prominent now. I think there's always a cyclical tendency to assert some of these post-work debates mainly uh, since 1945, I think, because you have these wave of automation and it just moves with capitalist cycles, I think. Uh, so ideologically, it's just a reflection of the way the capitalist business cycle functions in which you have progressive periods of growth, then you have periods of retrenchment, and then the way ideological trends respond to these infrastructural trends is actually quite transparent. So the first big new left wave on post-work writing is the late 60s, which is also the time of the information revolution and when people like Daniel Bell are talking about the post-industrial age and when it's very clear that a lot of Western countries are switching from industrial models to service models. And then you can see this happening every 10 years where you have a post-work period or a post-work surge together with calls for UBI. And then you again have a sort of producerist moment where the right says, oh, no, now everybody needs to get back to work. Full employment is what we need. Um, So I don't think this is new at all. And you can clearly see that the authors, a lot of these recent post-work writers are drawing on are actually mostly authors who did write in the 60s and 70s as well. So even someone like David Graeber is, I think, really a product of that post-war full automation age in which it first became conceivable that work would become superfluous. What I think is very specific in the 2000s, though, is 
two things. First is that you now really have a planet in which everyone is proletarianized. So even in large cities of Africa, the global peasantry has completely disappeared. So the death of the peasantry, which was kind of predicted um, by Marx already in the late 19th century, which then Hobbesfeld in the 1980s, 1990s diagnosed in the post-war period, mainly with all these developmental states that kind of drove people of the land into the factories, and then the structural adjustment period of the 70s and 80s, which completely uh, savaged what was rest, uh, what was remaining of that peasantry. But now I think we're really in a period in which that process is nearing completion, where the kind of separation of people from their means of production is complete. Together with the 2008 crisis, which is a catalyst, of course, for mass redundancy, I think this just creates a momentum for post-work discussions that is undeniable. So global death of the peasantry, 2008 market shocks, and aggressive automation. And adding up those three factors, uh, I think you're very likely to see a post-work period. What I think is specific, though, um, about it appearing on the left is the reconfiguration of the left imaginary since 1968 from what you could call full employment uh, for this vision towards a more leisure-oriented, um, I'd say, spontaneous order vision on the left. So that is what explains its popularity on the left as well. And um, just a quick question, I guess, on the intellectual roots a little bit, because you, you talked there about the global death of the peasantry. And in the <clears throat> in a review, it's really interesting how you trace the ideas of some of the anthropologists that would have influenced Graeber. Um, and it, do you think that there's one part of this, in addition to that kind of spontaneous leisure 68 vibe, there's also quite a nostalgia for, for peasant and, and rural ways of life. There's almost a kind of romantic anti-capitalism here, so a critique of capitalism in, in pre-bourgeois values, as Michael Lowy puts it. Do you think there is this kind of element of, of even Graeber's critique, which is quite sort of conservative and, and backwards looking to the days when we could just be, you know, peasants and, and drink cider and, and, you know, have that bit of wheat coming out of our mouths while we reclined and in, in the sunshine most of our days. I think that's absolutely right. Yes. Um, what I what I would add to that analysis is two things. Firstly, is I think we underestimate how much of that first anti-work anthropology from the 60s and 70s was actually anti-developmentalist. Insofar, mm. it was it was pitted against attempts by third world states, which it was used to call, to actually modernize their economies and drive their peasantries of the land and actually institute their own forums of Fordism with uh, mass welfare systems. And this is very clear in someone like James C. Scott, uh, the famous anthropologist who wrote all these books about uh, yeah early states and who's done a lot of work on historical anthropology, who was really sent to... Um, the third world on a CIA grant to invest, investigate forms of peasant resistance against state-driven modernization. And the idea was basically also what he said about Africa. Well, you have all these uh, African socialists who are trying to modernize their countries, trying to introduce uh, Western capital into it, trying to get um, certain infrastructure going. But actually, when you look at the sort of local and embedded knowledge of all these peasants who know how to cultivate their crops, that's actually a far superior form uh, of mm -hmm. economic than any of these top-driven state projects. And this is also where James C. Scott uh, converges very interestingly with someone like Hayek, where he says, like, no, the spontaneous order, either of the peasant commune or later of the slum, is actually way preferable to this kind of artificial 
a perfect panorama deal that a lot of these African socialists adhere to. And then the second point I would make is not necessarily about James E. Scott, but is about the anthropology or the ethnography of these pre-bourgeois, pre-capital societies, is that they're all about gift-giving. So Graeber's first book, The False Coin of Our Dreams, is actually a book about this famous French anthropologist, Marcel Mauss, who came up with this theory of gift-giving in the 1920s. And it's a kind of argument for what he calls nuclear or primitive communism, where he says, like, if you look at all these pre-bourgeois societies and the way they organize exchange, the way they even organize production, it's not around transactional ideals in which uh, I give you something and you give me something and this uh, equals out our exchanges, but it's really about gift giving. Um, So the kind of the modes of sociality we see in very small uh, family settings today where I mean, he always gives this example, if, if I ask someone for the salt at the table, we wouldn't expect any kind of remuneration for giving them the salt. So there are these basic forms of sociability that cannot be monetized that way. But and I think the irony of, um, of the way that Graeber looks at these pre-bourgeois modes of gift giving is that he completely underestimates some of their exploitative dimensions. So yes, you have egalitarian versions of it in some Native American communities where these potpatch mechanisms organize exchange in an egalitarian way. But when you look at aristocratic or pre-capitalist societies, the way the aristocracy justifies its appropriation and its taxation of the peasantry is always through this kind of feudal gift giving um, mm. feudal ideology. Mm. It's like we provide military support and you will provide the grain or whatever. So just before we move on to the main argument of of, of the book and, and I guess your critique of it, is this, is just have this very stark mental picture of a libertarian family uh, dinner where there's kind of bargaining on who, on the various different salt um, holders and the pepper holders and people passing butter at, at different rates across the table. Is this, um, I don't, is this something that you've, you've experienced now that you're in the, the heart of, of global capitalism in America at the moment? Have you had to pay them? <laughs> well, pay and you, but of, course, uh, of course, the unsaid, and the unsaid thing, of course, is that you have to have daddy guaranteeing the, the, the sort of exchange of salt and you can't have the kids teaming up together to like hold all the salt, right? Or to demand all Absolutely. the salt as well. And so there's always daddy there. Which is important. Has to be linked to the to the to gold at, at the end of the day, maybe. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> is that, yeah. <laughs> No, but okay, but I, I did want to say something else actually before we before we actually do get on to, to the substance of the argument, um, which is another another thing in, in relation to this romantic anti-capitalist idea, because it seems that a lot of the post-work ideas today, um, although they might have a certain romantic vision of. Um, you know, of, of what leisure can be, of uh, kind of cr- uh, people being set free to pursue craft and their own interests and whatever, or, you know, psychotropic adventures, <laughs> as you as you mentioned in uh, in your review, Anton. Yes. Um, but whatever that might be, I think the, the romantic anti-capitalist aspect of a, of a return to some golden age, I find it less present in contemporary post-work in many contemporary post-work arguments, or at least we could say that many of uh, the leading edge of arguments pro-UBI today seem to be quite techno-driven, let's say. You know, we can only have to think about fully automated luxury communism as as one example of that. Um, and I guess that that's what seems to be a little bit different. And to the extent that they have any sort of, uh, to the extent that any sort of romantic anti-capitalist vision exists today, it actually tends to be um, not from necessarily the post-work crowd, but actually tends to be more from um, kind of 
the the return of social democracy today, which is a kind of an attempt to return to to the sort of Fordist compact of the '60s. Uh, and I think that's the, the the way that we see romantic anti-capitalism today, much more than uh, in in kind of the kind of the newer post-work crowd. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I, I wouldn't say that someone like Graeber or Bastani are perfectly compatible. And I definitely think they might have a very different outlook, uh, certainly when it comes to the state. I mean, Bastani is an open statist, while Graeber has always been an anarchist. And his anti-statist sensibilities are very, very clear. I do think there's a continuity insofar as both Graeber and his romantic anti-capitalist tradition and the retro-Fordism or the kind of white heat of technology, social democracy, Bastani is trying to update is that they both share a depoliticization of the surplus insofar as they don't really want to think about what it means for a society to create more than just subsistence and what kind of politics are involved in that question. So the interesting thing with Bastani for me is that the retro Fordism and the nostalgia for these post-war ideals of growth or yeah, basically the nostalgia for a dynamic mode of capitalism is coupled with a complete uh, negligence or obliviousness towards what kind of political action was actually driving this growth in the post-war period. Um, and this is what I mean, where, what Graeber says about uh, peasants, uh, pre-capitalist peasants, is to say, like, there was no need to produce a surplus. You just uh, worked for like three or four hours, you gathered fruit and you gathered uh, different vegetables, you might do some hunting, and then once you had enough food, you could spend the rest of the day just uh, socializing or you could and the rest of the day around the commune. And weirdly enough, to me, there's a perfect parallel with the full automation argument made today, which is like, um, well, um, work doesn't really need to happen anymore. We can actually produce so that we'll have enough free time to basically just engage in social action. So production in both spheres is kind of left out of the picture. Production is something that needs to be taken care of um, Mm. as a necessity yeah. but it's not it's not a sphere of freedom yeah i i think this is a, a really important point and as <clears throat> as sympathetic as i am to calls for fully automated luxury and then as many other things as you can fit in there as possible communism it does seem that it is weirdly depoliticizing in that exact way that it's that technical solution to a political problem and that really the, the key point is that engels was right that already in the 19th century we had the technological means for socialism. So it is about politicizing the surplus and it is about, about basically saying, well, what, what would a rational um, productive system look like already today? We don't need to extrapolate into the future. And we can even, you know, even in the past, we had the possibility of, of, a, of a free society, but only if we have the political means and the political processes to, to bring it about. So, yeah, I think that the, the white heat 2.0, it's it's a bit of a, um, a ducking of some of these political problems and are solving them by by kind of uh, by default or short circuiting. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree that what I appreciate about the new literature is the departure from a certain technophobia. So I think Graeber was also part of a kind of pre-occupy and post-occupy left that um, was not sanguine enough about the possibilities all these new technologies might offer to socialist politics. But I think they share, um, as you say, um, a complete, yeah, they share a complete denial of this question of the politics of production. Because as Engels said, and I think Lenin said this in 1914 and in 1918 again, it says the 
material foundations for socialism are already there. I think capitalism has overdeveloped uh, to a large extent in the 20th century. This doesn't mean that you have to commit yourself to a degrowth position now, but mm. the fact that, th this is always crazy to me, the fact that you had people in 1918, 1919, such as Rosa Luxemburg, who were waging a revolution with claims that communism was around the corner. She said communism is around the corner, uh, materially we're, we're almost prepared for it. And that we're now 100 years later and that capitalism has dumped this enormous, uh, like enormous flood of commodities on it and still we're making these questions about technicality. This seems very, very strange to me. Because, I mean, if, if Rosa Luxemburg belonged, it was around, uh, believed it was around the corner, then why are we still debating that question today? Yeah, it, I, I think that it's weird, isn't it? I, I kind of think that she was right. It is around the corner, but we still haven't reached there in a hundred years. It's just, yeah. Can those two things be both right at the same time? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like they can. Anyway, sorry, Alex, I think you were going to introduce the... <laughs> The, well, the, the main the main course. That's, that's, yeah, that's let's let, let let's get down in, into the meat of it. I mean, actually, the, the the review is is fantastic because it's so rich in many references. Um, and I would encourage listeners to to go and actually have a read of it. Um, and so we're gonna try to take some themes out and and try to unravel them a little bit more or see where they lead uh, rather than sort of rehash what uh, what you've already written, Anton. Uh, so let's start with I guess one primary theme, which is that. The uh, post-workists seem, and I think this seems to be your argument, you know, the post-workists remain uh, within a very capitalist division between uh, work and leisure, and that they'd simply opt for leisure instead of work. And so uh, there isn't any kind of going through uh, the, the, the sort of possibilities of work, that, that possibility of freedom that work allows, that possibility, as you put it in your review um, of being the cause of things that of actually making and working and actually be using one's creative capacities in work um, to sort of to contribute to the world and that uh, the the sort of rejection of that driven by a crisis in the work ethic leads post workers simply to opt for leisure and hope that work somehow takes care of itself or fades into the background or that simply robots take care of everything. Uh, so could you talk us through why why this is problematic to remain in that dichotomy between work and leisure? The first point I'd make is that we're basically throwing away one of the central insights of post-war sociology, both I mean, in its Frankfurt School guise, but also more critical Marxist form of sociology, is the colonization of the sphere of leisure by capitalism. Um, so this doesn't imply that you have to be against consumption, because I think there are emancipatory arguments to be made for consumption as people like Ishai Landa have made. But I think Adorno said this quite rightly in the early 60s, is that to describe playing the piano or writing a book as a hobby or the way the tourist industry is completely remodeling the people escaped from work as itself uh, an enterprise shows that the emancipatory promise that leisure might have had in the late 19th century is, is changing and, and I think disappearing quite drastically. And I, I just... I just feel that like the way people go to a gym today, the way people conceive of relationships, all these things that we consider as part of the sphere of leisure or even the way sexual relationships have changed show that this work ethic has now even invaded the sphere of leisure. So leisure is no longer a sphere of freedom, but it's become a sphere of necessity as well insofar as mm. it's governed by very heavy forms of compulsion. People feel the need that they need to enjoy themselves. You can clearly see this in the term like quality time. So the way people who are workaholics then 
plan their weekends with their children and say like, oh, I'm doing quality time. So there's a distinction between quantity and quality time. But you can clearly see that what they mean by quality time is just a mirror image of the quantity of time they have at work where they regiment and they plan their leisure to such an insane degree where I'm saying like, if you have an, an idea that this might be a springboard for emancipation, that sounds very, very weird on an experiential level to me. Of course, I mean, to play devil's advocate, those advocates of UBI, for instance, would say that people's potential complete estrangement from work, uh, they're, they're, the fact that they will no longer need to go to work and that all work they do thenceforth is, is optional to earn maybe some additional money, um, would completely transform leisure because le- leisure would no longer be squeezed in little moments, little fragments between the working day uh, or between working days, uh, but would instead be far more liberated because, you know, so that's that's their argument. So, how I mean, how would you respond to that? Because it... it a UBI would lead to some liberation of leisure itself. Well, yes, but the question is the liberation of leisure in that sense hinges on the liberation of work. It's only by defusing the tension that's emanating from quantity time that you'll be able to reinvent quality time. So you're already emitting the logical dependence of leisure on work. So that commits you to a kind of politics of production, which I think is quite different from what they're uh, what they're currently proposing. And and secondly, that gets you into the question of power mainly because you have to ask the question, so what is conditioning this fear of leisure? Who actually has control over leisure? Um, and that, as, as I said, redirects you to the question of production. And then we're no longer just talking about a reinvention of leisure question because the reinvention of leisure to me is, is predicated on the reinvention of work because people look for something in leisure they can't find in work. Um, and this is, I think, the problem a lot of these people, these UBI proponents rightly recognize is that the pathology of leisure is the pathology of work. But obviously, this requires you to deal with the pathology of work first, because this is why people flee from the sphere of production in the first place. And I, I must admit, I've seen very little on this um, on this first fear there, except for easy abolitionist answers, which is just like, oh, let's automate away and give people more free time. But <laughs> I think Amber... Uh, a. Lee made this point about Yang Gang once in a, in a very good way. He says, like, well, we've already had uh, a mass UBI experiment in the post-war period, which was the dumping of women from the labor market in the 40s and 50s and their confinement to the domestic sphere, where they basically got sort of a consumer's grant from their husbands and they were little domestic goddesses that can order. And he says, psychologically, she, she says it was a nightmare. I mean, this mass UBI grant of the Fordist Housewife produced enormous amounts of pathologies um, because the way she enga- had to engage in reproductive labor and the way she had to plan this household was in no way liberating. And I think this is the same issue there. It's like, okay, but let's start where this pressure actually emanates from. Hmm. So just, just to ret- not to get to kind of <clears throat> pull Adorno about it, but I think the, the point that you made about the pathology of leisure being a pathology of work is... That's absolutely right. We see it. It's, it's so uh, clear how many aspects of le- leisure time are purely functional for work. You know, people do various things only, only on the condition that they can go back to work on Monday and in order to be able to be refreshed and rejuvenated and to have all of their their non-work energies um, expelled and, and expunged. And I have a, a hot, hot take on, on all of this. 
um, which is to do with to do with hangovers and how they have. And this is not this is you know as I think I've said this before. My my employers should not um, read anything in into this. But are they Patreon subscribers? So, you know. Yes. Well, <laughs> if they are, then then thanks. But having a hangover at work is 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 a little bit of of, of resistance in, in a way. It, it's one aspect of of leisure which is um which is actually not functional for work absolutely you, um, you so um i don't know what this means for, for for any listeners who want to engage in some Foucauldian acts of resistance but you know buy yourself a bottle of whiskey and see how you feel at work the next day but, um but no it, it but i think i think this is a really important point that the you know they're the they're, they're two sides of the same of the same coin and that functionality is Bullshit jobs often lead to, to bullshit leisure as well, and you can see that in some of the, the things which which uh, us millennials are struggling to, to fill our leisure hours with. They're, they're very um, strange leisure activities. Yeah, and I think sorry. The last point I'd add to this is that I think you had Alexander on the podcast recently, and he made this point in a, in a stellar way, where he said, "Like, look at how drugs have become functional themselves. So people who smoke weed uh, on a Sunday uh, or have their obligatory joint after they come home from work just to uh, prepare themselves for another day of work in that way. While in the 60s and 70s, the way drug use was conceived was as this explosion of spontaneity, this complete um, escape from any kind of societal norm, while now it's just been inserted, as you say, into this functional organization where you say like, okay, I have my bullshit job during the day, this is harrowing, it completely hollows me out inside, then I just need to manage that kind of trauma by having my obligatory obligatory shot at the end of the day. And this, I think, this change from the 60s ideal of drugs as potentially opening the doors of perception to just uh, a form of crisis management, basically, I think is, is mm. very terrible. Self-care. Yeah, I mean, I, even, I was even thinking about this the other day, like wondering whether hangovers were less bad, you know, 100 years ago or even, you know, 60 years ago. You watch people in films drink absurdly and drink the whole day long. And maybe it's the fact that they were always drinking, which meant that the hangover was never too bad. I mean, that's maybe one explanation. But the other is that they just didn't feel the same levels of anxiety. I mean, they had maybe neuroses linked to a kind of much more obviously repressive society, uh, but that maybe their their hangovers were experienced much more as liberatory rather than moments of terrible anxiety because they're not being productive on their Sunday. Anyway, that was <laughs> that's just something I was Absolutely. wondering, but it would seem to connect with what, what, what George has ra- had raised in regard to that. But just, just to follow on from that, um, Anton, um, isn't this kind of line of critique a bit too Protestant um, in that it's it's sort of celebrating that you know the the psychological or, or spiritual um, benefits of, of of living right and, and working hard and it's grounded in this idea that idleness is is a sin it makes us uh, anxious to do it because it's it, it's wasting the hours that that um, God has given us and making our hands um the devil's tools um is is this you know i'm not trying to play devil's advocate but is is, is this something that you 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 sort of see in the uh, critiques of of, of post work that kind of protestant celebration of work for for work's sake or to to reveal yourself as a member of the elect yeah absolutely i think there are two points the first is there's definitely a very very reactionary protestantism that's often marshaled to criticize some of these post-war demands. Um, so you can clearly see this in the workerist uh, tendencies you see on the right. And at the same time, I 
wouldn't be a person that feels comfortable with romanticizing work as a kind of anthropological need, uh, which sometimes you get in some kind of management literature, which is, I think, also consonant with some self-care arguments where it's like, oh, work as a source of social identity or kind of communitarian ideal that people are embedded in their workplace, when I think that completely neglects and completely misreads the dimensions of oppression and dimensions of domination that actually happen in the workplace. Because I think we should be very clear that the contemporary workplace is a place of domination. It's it's prima facie where uh, exploitation happens. So that we, sh we should never lose sight of that. The point I would make about the Protestant work ethic is that historically, I think it's wrong to characterize it really as a work ethic. I think it's a productivity ethic. So if you look at people like John Locke or even Max Weber, who really were the big proponents of this work ethic in capitalism's growth periods, is that the point they always make is like, well, it's not necessarily about the pleasure of work. It's not necessarily about the pleasure that laborers will get out of their work. It's to make sure there is a surplus that can then be reinvested. So this is this Calvinist inflection of this ideal. And I think there's even a phrase by John Locke, which is really fascinating, where he says, like, work done for the sake of work is purely useless. Um, he says work has to produce some kind of concrete benefit that can then increase productivity. Once you have increased productivity, there will be benefits that accrue through, through consumption, but necessarily through production. Um, so I think it would be mistaken to say that the Protestant work ethic is something socialists should use when they're making the case for work, because at the heart of it is always an ethic of productivity, which is not conducive to being flourishing. Perhaps, perhaps Second, at, a, at the higher order that that uh, you know Weber discusses it. Uh, but I mean, actual Protestants <laughs> or actual Calvinists will certainly have a work ethic, right? Um, which is a, a, a much more moral conception rather than tied to specific ends of productivity. Yes, but there it's always about discipline, either self-discipline or the way certain forms of coercion create submissive personalities. Mm. So you can see that in a lot of conservative arguments for wage labor, that they don't like workers striking, they don't like workers unionizing, they don't like workers actually staking a claim on how production is organized. What they like about people who work uh, in wage labor is that it conditions them into submissiveness. So he says like, well, I mean, if, if you, I mean, you can clearly see this in this literature on the crisis of the black family in the 60s and 70s is the way wage labor is marshaled by these conservatives to say like, well, the way this crisis of paternal authority within the black family is going to be solved is if they get a job, no matter how shitty the job is, this will teach them to be on time. This will teach them to obey orders. This will teach them to actually respect authority. And this is an ethic they will then will replicate in the family setting. But what's so interesting about those arguments for, for wage labor mainly is that they're not arguments for work, they're arguments for employment. Um, so there's no sense in which you can exercise any freedom at work. It's just that, okay, you need to be, become submissive. Once you're submissive, you'll be able to form your own personality. And I think the danger is that the left accepts this one-sided vision of work as employment or quiet employment that the conservatives have accepted, where they only see the submissive side of the dimension, but they don't see the possibility of control that is thrown up by wage labor itself. Right. So this is where, in the review, I talk about these Af South African youngsters who are asked, do you prefer a stable job or do you prefer a cash handout? And they all say, well, I prefer a stable job. And the anthropologists who asked them this are completely perplexed. And they say, like, well, this is very strange. But culturally, you have no precedence for this. But I think they realize way better than the anthropologists. They say, like, well, but if I have a stable job, I can actually have a say in how society is run. It might be oppressive, but there's also a moment of freedom in it. Yeah, and the only, answer, also, and the only answer to that is that you know, is the wrong one, which is uh, you've been brainwashed by capitalist ideology. I mean, that would be the only, I think, 
answer would one could come up with, and I don't think that would be a very satisfactory one. But in reality, if you have uh, a full week to fill and not a great deal of money to to to, to fill it with, I mean, UBI um, proposals are generally not that generous. Then that's quite a challenge. You actually have to do quite a lot of work to decide what you're going to do, rather than just knowing right here's my routine. I know when I have to get up. I know when I have to when I get back and um i've you know I've, i don't have to expend all that energy making plans of, of how to fill my fill my days yeah i think the ubi proponents would answer to this is that well once work becomes less of less of a pressure valve and some of its oppressive elements are alleviated then the ubi will also induce less pathological forms of behavior so people will not feel stressed about making choices once they get that money so same with what you were saying, Alex, about the false consciousness argument is that, well, I mean, there's always an argument you can make about brainwashing where they say, like, they just happen to believe this is emancipation when it's clearly not. But I think the argument about UBI is also an argument of collective action so far as, say you're a city and you have a surplus um, of money at the end of the, of the year. Is it really the best idea to just divide that surplus into individual slices and hand them out? to all of your individual citizens who will then engage in market transaction and create a Hayek instantaneous order? Or is it better to invest that money in something like a library of which the value is clearly not reductible to just these individual donations? Because what a library does is that it creates jobs, but it also creates a public good. And I think this is the same with the UBI problem is that they conceive of flourishing in such an individualist manner. They can't actually see that handing everyone their own sum of money will only stimulate the market in the end. It's also interesting that, sorry, just, just to jump in really quickly, sorry to, sorry to interrupt. Um, there's no, no, also no. a weird parallel there with the proportion of profits that firms have distributed as dividends to, um, to shareholders compared with the, the amount that they've invested in, in capital, um, which is it's quite striking how prior to the, I think it's prior to the, uh, to the 80s, Firms were way more likely because they were less beholden to this idea that a, um, a corporation has no social responsibility except to to enrich its shareholders. Um, that are way more likely to invest in um, in capital products and basically capacities of various sorts within the firm. But then this all shifted, and instead, you know, it was payouts. This idea that if there's anything left over you you distribute it you distribute it fairly because according to everybody in, in the community gets a, a payout from the, the um the city budget or from the the profits of, of the firm at the end of the financial year but it's i think there's there does seem to be something a, a bit of a parallel there which is you know we, we we've been living through a period which has definitely reinforced the idea that any um any gains should be externalized from an organization into the people who are its stakeholders rather than um, used for its its internal development in that way. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think you can track a, a parallel between the rise of shareholder ideology and what you could call the cash transfer state, even on the left, yeah. where these cash transfer ideals become way more popular because it's all about discretion. So the problem with capital investment versus paying dividends is that um, shareholders don't like the idea that either workers can still have a say over management in how management reinvests that money. They just want a discretionary mm. side, which they can then mostly. I mean, supposedly we're, they're supposed to reinvest it, but what happens now, as we're seeing, is that they're just 
investing it in the most ludicrous forms of uh, conspicuous consumption. The same is with the cash transfer ideology on the left is the idea is, well, you can't tell people what to produce or what to consume. You just have to give them money and then they'll be able to decide on what they spend it. I, th I think we should maybe use this opportunity to discuss whether there actually is a crisis in the work ethic, because I think, you, I mean, you make that statement in your article, and I'm inclined to believe it. And, I, and I, I would suggest maybe it could be linked to a wider sense of demoralization in across society today, which one could link even to the decline in trust in institutions as well, that uh, as, a, as a sort of product of individualization, the sense of your your sphere of activity is somehow complete feels completely disconnected to any other um, aggregation of, of, of human bodies at, at work or you know engaging any sort of activity so um, you going to work has no connection to what the the, the organization does often uh, a process which is which is furthered by uh, by outsourcing um, and the fragmentation of the labor process and things like this so um, I, I would agree that there's a that there's a crisis in the work ethic, um, and of course that could be taken in a con very conservative direction, <laughs> in in, a, in an argument to reestablish the work ethic. Um, and that wouldn't be my position, but um, but it can also I think it's an important starting point in my opinion to try to understand um, what might be what might be uh, progressive in the current discussions around post work and where those discussions could be led in a more progressive in a more progressive direction uh, than merely uh, endorsing the, the current the current uh, I guess predominant sort of uh, position which is just to uphold leisure against work I mean amongst post workers anyway that that tends to be the that tends to be their disposition so is do you think that there's a that there's a crisis in the work ethic today and where does it come from I, I think there def yeah there definitely is in, in so far as um, I think we have, have to remember that work is an institution it's very much at the center of our society although it's often hidden and ideologically it's not always articulated or made visible in, in the clearest way it is really at the center of our society however traumatic it might seem today and I think you can make a very interesting parallel with the kind of declining trust in institutions, the decline in all these intermediary bodies that facilitated access to the state, such as parties and unions or associations and churches in the last 30 years, and the decline in work in that both institutions such as parties and institutions such as work have become completely desocialized. So the way people relate to politics nowadays is through mainly the interface of the internet. I mean, in the 90s, it mainly used to be television, but now it's mainly the internet. But it allows for forms of mobilization and association that I'd say have a high libidinal payoff. And I mean, being on Twitter, you can obviously experience very ferocious debates, but they don't actually translate in any concrete political influence. And politics itself remains an exclusively technocratic affair. I think that the parallel with the crisis of the work ethic is there is that work is becoming desocialized. It's becoming more individualist. If you're a delivery driver or something, you just drive around mostly on your own. Um, the only interaction you have with your employer is through this app. So the decline of party democracy and the decline of work as a social institution go hand in hand. So there, um, I think you need to recognize the work ethic is part of a broader story that needs to be told about what Peter Mayer calls his void, um, mm -hmm. where 
the kind of void that is growing between citizen to state is very similar to the kind of void that has been growing between uh, citizens and that work. And the point with me is that, yes, post-workists rightly recognize a trauma insofar as they recognize that uh, work itself has is still at the center, but the center cannot hold. So it's become unsustainable as an organizer within our society. But to me, the question of trauma um, can never be abolitionist. So I think this is the basic point in Freud is that he says, well, um, what, what a trauma does is that uh, it always calls for negation or the German word verneinung. Like the first response to it is just repression because that's the way our, our psyche actually organizes these kind of questions. But if you actually want to deal with it and make your life livable again, you actually have to go through it. Like you actually have yeah. to face the trauma itself and see where it comes from. Um, and it's a very normal psychological mechanism that you'd respond to it with negation, but negation in itself will inevitably uh, cause a return of the repressed in the end. And this is also what I... And I guess one, one neat way of, of putting that, as you put it in, in the article, citing two sociologists who've uh, criticized Graeber's work, is that it's not so much bullshit jobs, but bullshit in jobs. Um, which I guess is one one angle to it, which is especially today people experience uh, the growth of neoliberal bureaucracy and a lot of um, forms of control, a lot of forms of bullshit in their job, which they experience as a trauma. Um, but of course, one one might go you know much further than that in terms of uh, the the sort of alienation and exploitation inherent in capitalist labor relations as a whole. Um, but I think it's I think that's a neat way at least to distinguish uh, distinguish I guess the post work conception from uh, the conception I guess which you advance Anton which is you know that of bullshit in jobs versus bullshit jobs and the other aspect which we've already spoken about which is the idea that everything is a job now so that even you know jobs have colonized leisure. Yeah, podcasting yeah. is a podcasting is a job, for example. Um, but just just to, to kind of um, ask, I guess, a, a follow on question from um, from that. So the, the, I guess the appeal of the argument to me, or at least the the kind of the appeal of the title of, of, of the book is 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 that, you know, in a in an, in an office environment, there is a phenomenon that people experience often quite viscerally that you have to um, not not be busy, but appear to be busy. You have to create your own your own bullshit and you have to um you know this and this is a one of the rules of the game that you 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 accept in in, in playing this um and i think you in your review you say that the, the weakest part of the the argument is 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 sort of why bullshit jobs emerge you know what, what are the, the the structural conditions which which generate them but what you know what is what's the strongest part of the argument what is the because you know, I, I think we've been probably quite negative overall so so far but what are what are the the bits of this of this book or this approach to understanding work that, that have value in your opinion if any well i think i think it he pitched it in a very powerful way in that i think there is a cultural crisis of the work ethic or cultural crisis in general which the, the expression bullshit jobs partly captures I think there are two paradoxes insofar as why is that book so specifically popular in elite circles? Um, so why mm -hmm. is it that he advertise it on The Economist and Bloomberg, all these classical uh, spokes platforms uh, for the capitalist class? So why is it there, that they're so invested in buying into the story of bullshit jobs? 
So just, then, just just really quickly, because in, in in your review you do you you do point this out, and I think it's really important that it basically was um, like an extended TED talk, it transcribed extended TED talk. Everybody loved it. Bloomberg loved it. The Economist, you know, the so the Financial Times, the Guardian, and it's and and that is you know Slate, New Yorker. It's, yeah, and and that's that's the greatest testament to the crisis of the work ethic, right there. I think. But sorry, so, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but you, I kind of punctured your flow there. But that's uh, you know another reason why my listeners should go and read read the review. But it's it's just striking that you know oh everybody agrees jobs are bullshit. We all we all know this now, or or whatever. That seems to be an important starting point. Yeah, yeah, and I think the way you analyze uh, uh, sorry analyze this um, elite enthusiasm for the book is mm. also through bullshit in jobs. Um, argument to say like of course they'd be invested in seeing jobs as bullshit jobs um, because it allows for a complete elimination of the potential of power even within a bullshit job so once you reframe the problem as bullshit in jobs this politicizes jobs insofar as it says okay but we need to have public control over how these jobs are organized we need to make sure there are labor regulations we need to make sure that these office workers get unionized as well that we introduce models of strikes that can actually allow them to change their working environment but if you just model it as a bullshit job this already creates this tendency within the capitalist class which is okay, work is not important anymore. It's mainly within a sphere of consumption that will, people will, will look mm. for emancipation because they have no incentive whatsoever to invest in better working conditions in that case. Mm. Um, so it doesn't coerce capital into anything specific. It just reaffirms their position as power holders within society and saying like, it's true, we have so much power over you that we can make you do these senseless tasks. But really, they are senseless and there's no way you can ever uh, change that kind of environment. What you want to do is look for these other spheres of flourishing, which we're already ready to monetize. So the way Tinder and all these new apps are functioning is that they're basically monetizing the last outskirts of human sociability and making sure that even there you can mine loads of money out of basic human interaction. Very well put. Uh, very well put. I, I do get the sense from all of this post-work stuff, uh, for all a lot of the radical pretensions and their explorations of of the, our current relationship with work, and and it's seizing on on certain contemporary truths, I guess, uh, is that there's it's driven by an overwhelming desire to to drop out rather than to seize control. And I guess that's that's fundamentally what what's at stake. So as a way of rounding this out. Um, I guess how how do we how do socialists? I, maybe that's a silly way to phrase. I mean, how do we how do we take this on? How do we address the questions which are raised by something like David Graeber's bullshit jobs and take it in a in a productive direction to um, at the and on the one hand be able to recast production as a site of struggle, to uh, turn back to work as a potentially uh, a, a sort of creative form of human activity and not as an alienating thing without at the same time trying to uh, recuperate a lost work ethic which uh, which which won't be which won't be which won't be achieved again for for a number of uh, significant cultural and material changes that have happened under capitalism in the past hundred years uh, so, you know so how do we how do we sort of mediate those those different pitfalls mm. well I think the first thing, that has to be done on the left is acknowledge the, the reality of that trauma. So beyond the elite, elite enthusiasm we mentioned before, Graeber obviously has also tapped into something very profound about how the majority of the population experience um, 
their jobs. He maybe mischaracterizes it, but there's definitely something there. So we need to acknowledge that trauma. What I'd say is that you have to turn the exit story he presents into a voice story. Say like, well, okay, but if we take the trauma seriously as a Freudian, what does it mean to actually face this trauma head on? And so this would be a, a nice way of reorientating the reality of bullshit, but still saying, well, but we actually have to go through the bullshit and make sure um, um, we work with it on, on those terms. I think the two dangers you have is either easy post-work leisure solutions or buying into a certain ideal of workaholism, which it, I think is even more pathological than some of the leisure stories, because it is true that um, mainly middle-class professional circles work has also become the exclusive means for flourishing. Um, so you have people in banking sectors or you have people uh, even in these other creative industries that work insane amounts and are completely incapable of even socializing in a normal way anymore once they mm. leave work, um, which also to me means that you need a holistic approach that actually takes on all these fears together. You need to start with production, but once you start with production, you'll also, be, uh, you'll also make it able for people to actually enjoy those other activities more. Because what needs to happen, I think, is pre-political insofar as you need to make possible these forms of association that can allow people to actually organize in the workplace again so that all these other spheres that are suffering in an ancillary way from the work ethic can be freed up again as well. So what you're advocating is essentially a kind of Shawshank redemption approach. You need to go through the, the tunnel of, of bullshit jobs you know we need to crawl on our hands and knees and then we emerge at the other side with a more more um productive relationship to work and leisure yeah i mean what I, what one thing i say is that other metaphors are available <laughs> i don't know it's a good one i, mean, <laughs> I think it does it, it does its job here i think it does its job but the last sustained challenge to capitalism in the West, or that was mounted in the last 50 years, was done by a completely integrated and highly, how shall I say, um, yeah, a working class that came out of a reformist period. So the 68 to 73 uh, cycle of struggle in France, but also in other European countries was done by people who were completely integrated into their welfare states, who had won an enormous amount of social rights and were precisely bolstered by those social rights to go even further and ask for even radical solutions. So there is just no evidence that this integration narrative instills a kind of revolutionary passivity into the working classes. I think social rights and all these pre-political means of, of making struggle possible are immensely important. So obviously what you'd have to focus on first is rebuilding uh, a public sphere, making sure that all these public goods become accessible again, which they are. I mean, this is the story about Medicare for all in America as well. It's, it's, it can be paid for. It's just that capital is so irrational that it cannot even realize that it's bad for itself if it doesn't take care of the social reproduction of its workers. And I think these forms of association are crucial if we actually want to politicize production again. Absolutely. Um, and if that doesn't convince you, you know, when I was a grad student, I used to be a post-workist and then I actually got like a quote unquote normal job. Uh, and then I stopped being a post-workist. So, you know, I think that that's <laughs> that settles it. <laughs> this knockdown argument yeah exactly all right cheers anton that's been great uh we gotta let you get off uh to your flight uh, out of texas um and and back to uh back to the uk right 
that where you're headed? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a bit. I'm, I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about the populism we, uh, question. We've done it before, and we are going to uh, do it again. Always very happy to have you on. So that sounds um, like that sounds like an excuse for you to come back on at some point. I mean, that's I'm without being too about it. Yeah, I'm afraid I will have to. There's yeah, no escaping uh, it. especially because, I, like, I I think your um your your mooted alliance um, or at least sympathy towards the populists from the part of socialists uh, will at least rub Phil up the wrong way which uh, will be which makes it worth it so yeah, he, he hates them he hates them I yeah. think in his uh, in Lenin book he has this amazing passage where uh, he says that the 20s all they do is just mechanize agriculture as aggressively as possible just get rid of all these backward peasants and inflate away their savings it's really really <laughs> the idiocy of rural life as, uh, as, as Martin Engels put it um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to say before before you go really quickly that I I, I thought that that is easily the best review of, of of that book of bullshit jobs that I'd I'd read. And starting with 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 Kant made me made me realise how I I think I sort of am a Kantian still. This idea of freedom as rule following, I kind of like Absolutely. that. You know, you make you make the rules collectively. This is what Rousseau saw, and then this is what freedom is. And it's like, you know, it's just such a it's all these bohemian jerk-offs. So like, yeah, I don't want to work. I don't want to be part of your society, man. It's like, fucking hell. Just, most annoying people are into this. Like, just bad dudes. And I think yeah. it also explains the, the popularity of Foucault because it allows for a form of disembodied freedom that mm. uh, ratifies a certain kind of middle-class leisure. Yeah. And also, like, people with just bad personalities. Well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's it's a it's a voucher for tox- toxicity. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice way to put it. Actually, maybe we're we're gonna we're gonna call the episode that voucher for toxicity. <laughs> it sounds like a kind of mid nineties, early noughties um, uh, emo like system of a down. Yeah, right? toxicity. Voucher yeah, for toxicity. Yeah. They'd be making some quite intense and earnest, but ultimately not very good. I don't know post. Just need to find some good outro music which will which will fit that vibe right now. <laughs> <laughs>